Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much once again uh, for being with us. We're also uh, here because we want to make sense of uh, the things that are written in the Old Testament of Scripture, of Holy Scripture. And we pray that you would guide us and, and give us uh, your perspective, not ours, and uh, lead us to truth. And uh, we thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Really, uh, this, this portion of it is going to be uh, a dialogue more than anything else. I want to make it somewhat more conversational um, because this is something that I think all of us have thought about uh, and are, or at the very least have in the back of our minds. What do we do with this Old Testament God that seemingly contradicts the New Testament Jesus? Uh, and God of the New Testament. And so uh, this has been, this issue here in regards to the Old Testament God has especially been a, a point of attack by the new atheists. So not only are we attempting, or our attempt here will be uh, not only to defend God, and that's one of the primary things we'll be doing is defending God against these attacks, but also, and, and this is my hope, that some of the questions that we have in our own minds will also be resolved to an extent. But, uh, and, and having said that, we'll also discover that we don't have all the answers. And as a matter of fact, the experts, Bible-believing experts, both Adventists and, and otherwise, conservative scholars, also admit that we don't have all the answers. But Having said that, we do have enough of a sufficient light upon which to base our faith, and that's good news. So uh, keep that in mind. I'm going to be reiterating some of those things. Um, and, and the other point I want to make is we don't want to go to either extreme, and, and uh, the first extreme, extreme being that we don't face up to the facts. We just run away from these things. We shelve it. We lock the door. We put it behind another vaulted door and throw away the key. We don't want to do that uh, because we want to come to some type of uh, conclusion of who God is in the Old Testament. At the same time, we don't want to go jump to the other extreme and say, well, what they're claiming is all true and I'm just going to jump on their, that bandwagon because that's the popular thing to do. Uh, uh, so we don't want to go to that extreme either. So. Uh, having said that, let's go ahead and move forward. If God is good, why does he seem so mean, especially in the, in the Old Testament? Uh, the new atheists, uh, as Paul Copin, he's one of the leading uh, Bible-believing, he's not Adventist, but he is a Bible-believing uh, Christian who, is a, who makes a strong biblical and historical attempt to defend God against these attacks. And he says this, the new, uh, that they, the new atheists are the new public, popular face of atheism. Uh, here you have a picture of, of Richard Dawkins. And uh, notice what, one of the things he says, isn't it a remarkable coincidence? Almost everyone has the same religion as their parents. And it, and it always just happens to be the right religion. Religions run in families. If we'd been brought up in ancient Greece, we would all be worshiping Zeus and Apollo. 
If we had been born Vikings, we would be worshiping Wotan and Thor. How does this come about? Well, through childhood indoctrination, he says. And, and by the way, is there some truth to this statement? Sadly, yes. And that's what makes their arguments compelling because Satan would never win, deceive anybody if there was some components or components of truth to it. And so he is making, sadly enough, uh, some truthful uh, statements here uh, and, or assumptions. And so we need to make sure that we are Seventh-day Adventist Bible-believing Christians, not because mom and dad are, but because we also have studied it out and we see that, that, the, God, that the, the religion or the Christian uh, Seventh-day Adventist denomination that we're involved in is actually uh, biblical. Christopher Hitchens, how many of you have seen him before on, the, on television, the media, or anything like that? He is uh, he's suffering uh, from cancer uh, currently, but uh, very, very vitriolic against Christians. And as a matter of fact, he has stated that Christians, uh, that religion is evil. It's caused uh, massacres, and it's just inherently, innately evil uh, and, and uh, anti-intellectual. He says uh, this, let me just tell you something, quote, for hundreds and thousands of years, this kind of discussion, meaning this discussion of is Christianity true, I don't believe in Christianity, and the arguments against Christianity, even this kind of discussion, he says, would have been impossible to have. And this is a true statement, by the way. Or those like us would have been having it at the risk of our lives. Religion now comes to us in this smiley face, ingratiating way because it's had to give so much ground and because we know so much more but you've no right to forget the way it behaved when it was strong and he's referring to the, the Middle Ages and the middle uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, and when it really did believe that it had God on its side and so what's happening is because in the name of Christianity a plethora of atrocities have occurred. The atheists are using this as ammunition to say Christianity, all it leads to is it's killing and murder and atrocities in the name of God. And, uh, and so he sees it as an evil phenomenon. And then you have uh, Sam Harris. And um, we're not going to read uh, that little uh, portion there. But, um, of course, he, again, is one of the leading proponents, one of the four horsemen, if you will, that, that claims that being a, uh, if you are a Christian, that means you're, you, know, you don't have a high view of, of using your, uh, of your intellect, and uh, you're not being honest, intellectually honest. And then you have Daniel uh, Dennett, who completes uh, the four horsemen, uh, and uh, he is a, a professor at Tufts and also very vocal in, anti, in his anti-Christian stances. So some of the claims of the, of the new atheists. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll read it here. The God of the Old Testament is arguably, and by the way, this quote, you'll find it everywhere. He's, he's noted, uh, he's may been popularized because of, of this statement. 
The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice his use of words there. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, uh, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now you don't have to know the definitions uh, of all those words to know, to get a picture that he's not seeing God as someone who's good, right? Does it, it doesn't take uh, uh, in, uh, the brain of Einstein to figure that out, that he sees God as an evil being, at, at least what the God rep- represented in the Old Testament. Those are some powerful words. Speaking of the Canaanite and, and the Old Testament, um, and by the way, that was, uh, hold on one second. Speaking of the, the Canaanites and the uh, Old Testament, uh, one of the four horsemen says this, pitilessly driven out of their homes to make room for the ungrateful and mutinous children of Israel. Speaking of the Old Testament, the warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, uh, pricing or purchasing of, of brides, as, as seeing you know, women as objects, uh, another uh, thing that they claim, and for indiscriminate massacre. Sam Harris. Now, the, the previous slide was Christopher Hitchens. Sam Harris says this, not only is a character, now we're getting, so he's talking about the character of God, who God is, is diabolical, devilish, in other words, in the Old Testament. But there are explicit uh, prescriptions for how to live that are not metaphors. They are not open to theological judo. In other words, what he's saying is what the readings that you have uh, in the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says, you Christians can't work any type of judo around it. It's just painting a picture of God who is vindictive and wrathful. It, and it's in clear language. I don't care what you say, there's nothing you can do. There's no theological judo that you can do to rectify that. God just comes right out, he says, and says, stone people for a list of offenses so preposterous and all-encompassing that the killing never stops. By the way, in our history, uh, Christians have used and legitimized their atrocities using uh, the Old Testament. So there is some truth to their claims. And then he says this, you have to kill people for working on the Sabbath. So are they, are they raising some real issues here? I mean, stuff that, that, that uh, I, I don't think and I don't believe we can just shelf. 
we need to confront these uh, because uh, because it it is being uh, hurled at Christians these types of attacks. So charges against God and uh, runs the whole gamut of from inferiority of women that the Old Testament endorses this uh, slavery. Uh, a God who is jealous and self-centered, uh, the universality of the Mosaic laws, and God being arbitrary to judge anybody for uh, a set of laws that were confined to a specific people. Uh, and so they, uh, of course, uh, he sees that as injustice. Uh, ethnocentrism, uh, bride pricing, the binding of Isaac, Right, that's another attack, uh, child sacrifice, for example, um, favoring one eth uh, the ethnicity of, of Jews over, over anybody and everyone else, um, genocide, and of course, arbitrary laws. You know, an argument might go like this, how in the world do you stone someone for simply picking up sticks on the Sabbath? And, and by the way, as I say those very words, I'm very sure that some of you are also thinking, yeah, how in the world do we deal with this? I know I have, have had those thoughts, and, and, uh, and, so, and those are honest uh, reflections. So what are we to do? That's the question. What are we to do? And, uh, and by the way, um, uh, what I did in this study, as I was studying the, the Bible, as I was studying the Spirit of Prophecy, I also went forward, uh, went over uh, to um, see what, what other Bible-believing scholars are, are thinking and how they're responding. Because currently in Adventism, it's sad to say that we don't have a voice that is reaching the world at large. And I, and I believe uh, that we need uh, um, if God has, has blessed you with, with intellect and a mind to, to go into and delve deeper into these things and study some of these things because it, it is, is certainly needed in today's day and age. But Paul Copin, a non-Adventist scholar, he says this. He says, some of us wince when we read Dawkins and, and, and other atheists, when we read their words. Not just because we find them offensive, but because if we're honest, we sometimes find ourselves thinking the same thing when we read the Old Testament. What are we to make of texts that speak of God meeting out horrific punishments on whole families like Achan and Korah? Or a God who smites a man dead for touching a sacred object? Or for offering the wrong kind of sacrificial fire? How are we to understand the language of God's anger jealousy or vengeance alongside what we have been taught about God's love, mercy, and compassion. Goes on to say, Bible believers shouldn't shove them under their holy rugs, meaning these Old Testament uh, ethical challenges. As people of the book, Christians should honestly reflect on such matters. Would you agree with that? 
Unfortunately, most pastors and Christian leaders are reluctant to tackle such subjects, and the results are fairly predictable. And by the way, what we need to do is not just have some little text that we've memorized that superficially addresses these issues. We need to go beyond that because the arguments that are being hurled at Christians are, are much deeper and cannot be resolved from just one little proof text. We need to delve deeper and, and, and look at these honestly and, uh, and squarely. When on, and so what are, what are the results that are fairly predictable when we're reluctant to uh, tackle such subjects? Well, it goes on to say, when uninformed Christians are challenged about these texts, they may be rattled, rattled in their faith. And, uh, and, and I think that's something we need to, to address. I, I would highly recommend, by the way, uh, keeping in mind that he is a non-Adventist, but nevertheless, he has a lot of insightful things. And, and what scholars do that pastors don't have resources uh, for is that they, uh, they delve deeper into the history the, 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 the culture of the ancient uh, Canaanite world at that time. And so they, they're attempting to wrestle it, uh, with it within the context that these events took place in. And I, and I think that's important. I think that's very important that we, that we do that. One big problem for any interpreter is this. We're dealing with an Old Testament text that is remote in both time and culture. In many cases, the new atheists aren't all that patient, right? Because they, they pick out these texts, right? And it's like this. They, they're, they're, they're going through Deuteronomy. They're going through Joshua. They're reading Judges, and they're just looking for ammunition, right? Uh, how many of you have read the Bible in that fashion, right? I'm going to prove that guy wrong on the nature of Christ, or I'm going to blow that person away on the Sabbath, or, or, or what have you. And that's not the way we should be studying the Bible for an atheist or for us as Christians. But, so, but what they're doing is they're, they're, they're superficially reading Scripture, and they're not patient in the sense that they're not attempting to understand this, the complex text, uh, Paul Copen says, in their historical context and within the broader uh, biblical canon. And, um, and so, so their arguments, though they seem compelling, are also superficial in that they're not providing the whole picture, the whole context. So with that said, some rules of thumb as we delve into this. First and foremost, uh, number one, we must admit, as Bible-believing Christians, we don't have all the answers. As one Christian puts it, however strongly we believe in divine revelation, we must acknowledge both that God has not revealed everything. When Job was suffering at the hands of Satan, did he know why? Know all the whys and the hows and, and all the questions? No, he did not. But he, was, he yet remained faithful to his God. So God has not revealed everything. We need to keep that in mind. And that much of what he has revealed is not plain. Now, there's a whole lot in Scripture that is plain. But there are some things on the flip side of that that are not, uh, that are not plain, meaning there's no explanation. There's no footnote 
where God qualifies some of his actions. So we need to begin reading scripture and, and, and attempt to piece together uh, some of these uh, incidents that, uh, and phenomenon that, that occur in scripture. Christopher Wright, uh, who has, has wrestled with many of these things, puts it this way. It is possible to be as clear as we can be on things that we do understand or should understand because God has made them clear in the Bible while accepting our lack of understanding about many other things that God has not chosen to explain to us and to do so with humility and even gratitude and relief. We can be perfectly honest about the things we don't understand without threatening our core faith in the truth of the things we can and should uh, understand. And so, um, so that's the first, the, the, the first thing is we have to, as a rule of thumb, recognize that we won't have all the answers, that we may not come to an exhaustive uh, conclusion an exhaustive-based conclusion based on all the facts. Number two, we also have to remember that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And the fact that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. By the way, Isaiah 55, uh, 8 uh, and 9 is where we find the, the passage that states that, that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And if you want to turn in your Bibles there, I'm just going to read the passage quickly. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, it says this, My thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher. And, and not necessarily just in a moral sense, but in terms of how God approaches and thinks about things is so much higher, we can't even begin to comprehend how God goes about making a decision. Do you think that, this is the thing, when we make decisions, it's based on a limited set of facts that we happen to know. When God makes decisions, it's based on knowing everything, right? So there's a big difference between God and us in the decision-making process. And so, so we, we need to keep this in mind that His ways are higher than our ways, infinitely higher, and in his thoughts than our thoughts. And we, all, we already read the, the text in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, 11 through 12 and, and verse 14, how spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And the atheist will never have spiritual discernment. It's true that the Holy Spirit may be working and guiding and, and attempting to influence their minds, but at the same time, they, are, they don't have the same eyeglasses that you and I have. So that's rule of thumb number two, to recognize that our thoughts are not God's thoughts and that spiritual things are spiritually discerned as we attempt to understand some of these, these difficult issues. Number three, as a rule of thumb, you are not going to convince or win over any closed-minded atheist per se with any arguments. Why? Because their pride is at stake. And when pride is at stake, and your pride is at stake, and it's about not about truth, but who's going to win, no one's going to, in the heat of passion and pride, admit that they're faulty. 
right? That's why we don't convert people by beating them over the head with a stick. Uh, yes? That's right. That's a that's a. Sure. Well, thank yeah. Thank you for that. So that so so we we need to keep in mind that the purpose of these meetings is not for you to grab ammunition to go out there and bash people over the head with. Uh, you're not going to win anybody in in such fashion. Number. F uh, so so let's delve into now the uh, some a philosophical response to some of the issues raised, meaning how do we even approach these issues? What type of lens do we need to, or, or perspective do we need to have to even uh, begin this dialogue and this debate? And that's what I mean by uh, a philosophical response. That does not mean I'm, we're gonna go to Plato and Aristotle uh, today. And Abraham, you know, in the context of God going to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And, and, and Abraham knew what that was all about in, in Genesis 18. He knew that they were on the verge of extinction, right? And Abraham raises a question that you and I may have asked of God if we were placed in a similar situation. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? If there are 50, Lord, 50 righteous people, can you blot them out, uh, all of them? You, you can't do that. So he's, he's, have you ever done this? He's bargaining with God. He's bargaining with God and saying 45, 30, 20, right? 10. Because he knew that, that God wasn't arbitrary and, and he asked a question that you and I may also be asking as we assess these things. Elijah also asked questions. So it's not wrong to ask questions. That's why I put these statements here because you have Bible, biblical, uh, Bible-based prophets who also ask similar questions. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those the happiest who, who deal treacherously with other people? And sometimes it's, it's a challenge to make sense of these things. So we're looking at a, a philosophical uh, response here. And before we even attempt to address this issue, we need to, uh, answer, to resolve this question of why God permitted evil in the first place. Isn't that a fair question to ask? Why did he even allow all this to go on as far as it has, let alone the Old Testament? And so uh, we as Adventists, I believe, have a, a great position because we have the great controversy perspective that helps us to interpret this. But, but let me liken this response, this, this question, why God permitted evil in the first place. Let me explain it in this way. When God made the decision to permit or allow evil, he was faced with a similar scenario or face, uh, with a similar position as a commander in an army uh, is when he has to make decisions. And when a commander in an army has to make decisions, it's not the decision of having none of his soldiers die versus all the soldiers dying, right? That's not the decision he's making. The decision that the soldier is making is 
how can I reduce 20,000 dying uh, or how can I prevent 20,000 of my soldiers dying and make it more like 10,000, right? So when God was looking at evil and, and the context of the world, he knew uh, there were some, uh, several things that, that, that he was confronted with. Number one, he could save everybody, There's, and that would be no question. He could save everybody, uh, but in order to do that, there would be there, there was no guarantee for everyone's salvation unless he took away the will or the freedom of every person's ability to choose, right? And so when, once, you, once you allow for choice and the freedom of choice, then it's no longer in God's control. Um, so that's, that's one clear thing that, that he needed to keep in mind. The other thing is, the second thing is, he's, he also had to consider the cost. For example, and we're going to get to this in a second here, he could have just said, you know what? I know in the future that if I allow Satan to go on, that he's going to cause Adam and Eve to fall and sin, and then millions are going to fall, or, or are going to uh, lead, be led to destruction. He knew those things uh, on the basis of his foreknowledge. And so he could have, he could have, just as soon as Satan fell, he could have, A, just completely like, you know, uh, like you do in a computer, you write a bunch of stuff and then just select all, and he could have deleted. So that in that split moment that Satan fell, he could have just said, select all, delete, and Satan just kept on going, and none of this would have ever happened. He could have done that. But God is so faithful to his, his own principles that he stands by that he did not do that. Wouldn't it have been much easier for him to do that? But that would have been contrary to who he is, uh, the, 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 uh, the philosophy and the principle of love. Love demands and requires the freedom of choice. And so uh, that, was not in, that was not an option. And so now he's confronted with the option of, okay, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm speaking for God here, and, and I'm just probably, you know, this is probably not even the process God goes through, right? But I'm just kind of uh, humanizing it, uh, if you will, and, and, and putting it in language that we can explain that, uh, or understand. So here God is confronted with a decision. How do I maximize, right, those who are saved versus those who are lost? How do I, uh, how, I need to look at all the scenarios and what is the very best scenario and, and, and reality that, and decision that I can make so that, that instead of everyone being lost, at least a good chunk or portion of humanity will be saved. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, and and um, and I, I think that, in my humble opinion, was some portion, at the very least, uh, a part of of some of the thought processes that might have gone in, uh, through the mind of God. We 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 know this. Uh, this is also a biblical principle. You know the, the the story in Luke, about counting the cost, right? 
Uh, you've heard that sermon, how, how before we make a decision even to follow Christ, we need to count the cost to know what we're getting ourselves into. And, and I believe God did the same thing. So we need to approach this whole argument from this perspective, that there are no, there are no great options, there are only bad options, and worse options, and God is choosing uh, amongst the best options that he had, um, given free will and, and free choice. Does that make sense? All right, let's go forward. So there were no uh, absolute winners in the sense that uh, everyone would be saved and God would be absolutely victorious in the sense that every individual would obtain salvation. So God's omniscience, the decision God made was a result of a complete and unlimited deliberation by means of which God considered and weighed every possible circumstance and its ramifications and decided to settle on the particular option he desired. Hence, logically prior, if not chronologically prior to God's creation of, of, this, of this choice or reality was a divine deliberation concerning which world to actualize. And one of those decisions was to maintain free will for you and I. And, and that probably wasn't even an option on the table uh, because he would never even decide that. The other thing we need to keep in mind is that there were issues uh, involving the great controversy between Christ and Satan that God needed to be resolved. And so as we seek to answer this question of, of why God permitted evil in the first place, why did he allow it to go on for so long? We have to look at it through the great controversy perspective because there were issues involving the law of God there were issues involving the government of God and also issues involving the character of God. Ellen White says this in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 69. From the first, the great controversy had been upon the law of God. Satan had sought to prove that God was unjust, that his law was faulty, and that the good of the universe required it to be changed. In attacking the law, he aimed to overthrow the authority of its author. In the controversy, it was to be shown whether the divine statutes were defective and subject to change or perfect and immutable. And moving forward, why did God permit rebellion to mature? Well, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 41, and that's what, uh, whoops. That's what uh, this number is here. These, all these quotes are from Patriarchs and Prophets. Page 41, it says this, God permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of disaffection ripened into active revolt. It was necessary for his plans to be fully developed that their true nature and tendency might be seen by all. Because, because uh, the angels at that time did not have a complete understanding of the aims and purposes of Satan. And, uh, and, and so he, God allowed it to move forward. Number two, God can employ only such means as were consistent with truth and righteousness. Satan could use what God could not, flattery and deceit. He had sought to falsify the word of God and had misrepresented his plan of government, claiming that God was not just in imposing laws upon the angels. So, so 
Satan is making these accusations against God's law, against God's government, against God's character. And what do you think would have happened if God just said, what? And then just blew him out of the sky. As onlookers, what would have been your first impression? Or what would have been your thoughts? Number one, yes, that's a very good point. But the second point is, is I'm going to get my act together because if not, I'm in big trouble. And, 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 and think about it this way, right? God wants only the service that springs forth from love, right? Um, there was a dog. Uh, we, we live on a, like a 10-acre, my, my family. There was a dog barking on, on our property, and this was, I don't know, like five years ago. And um, this dog was, was barking, like, as in, like, this is my, I, I'm claiming this area that, that where you're at. And it was inching closer and closer. And we were looking from our, our second, the second floor, this dog that was barking at us in our house. And so, um, and, and by the way, I, I don't recommend doing this, but one of my family members, uh, happened to have a, a 22. Now, he didn't shoot the dog, so don't worry about that. He didn't shoot the dog, but as this dog was barking, and barking very loud, and a lo- loud bark, uh, one of my family members, of course, he didn't shoot the dog, he just shot the gun in the air. And, because uh, we had a bigger bark. We had a gun, right? We had a gun. And as soon as we shot that, that gun, uh, that dog, took off running, and, and he never came back ever again, right? He obeyed, right? He obeyed. Uh, the, the funny thing about the story is, is as, as his gun was shot, our own dog also took off running, and he was gone for like, I don't know, like five hours. He also got scared. And, uh, and that's the problem. This was the conundrum that, that God was in. He could not. He could not. He did have a bigger gun. But he could not use it because then if he did, it would jeopardize his old kingdom. And, and, and not only that, he wouldn't even use that as an option because God is a God uh, of love. So why, why God permitted rebellion to mature? The third uh, part, uh, it, was there, it was therefore necessary, Patriarch and Prophet says, to demonstrate before the inhabitants of heaven and of all the worlds that God's government is just, his law perfect. The true character of the usurper and his real object must be understood by all. Do you think God values understanding? He must have time to manifest himself by his wicked works. Do you think God has patience? A whole lot of patience. You know, I've been learning patience because I have, I have a dog, and uh, the dog doesn't come potty trained, right? I just want, you know, we live in a generation where we need quick fixes. Here at Weimar, our internet is slow. Have you experienced that? It's, it's like deathly slow. And you know, and, and so we live in this fast food generation where we want everything quick. And I'm glad, and I'm grateful that God it's not like you and I. That he allows things to 
uh, he allows the process to go on so that you and I can come to conclusions at, uh, at, at our pace and at our time. He doesn't pull out that gun and shoot bang, all right? Even though that would get, that would be a quick fix to the situation. God does not do that. Number four, God permitted Satan to demonstrate the nature of his claims, that evil, that evil is the result of God's government. That was one of the claims. Uh, to show the working out of his, of his proposed changes in the divine law. His own work, his own work, Satan's own work must condemn him. The whole universe must see the deceiver unmasked. Number five, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan. Since the only service of love can be acceptable, that can be acceptable to God is the allegiance of his creatures that must rely upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. Had he been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than from love. And six, and, and, and do you see why your knowledge of God is so important? Because your knowledge of God determines whether you serve God from fear versus love. Number six, the inhabitants of heaven and of the world, being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin, could not then have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. And the seventh and final one, God had to allow rebellion to, to mature and permitted it to, to go on for the good of the entire universe. Uh, and so Ellen White says this, for the good of the entire universe, through ceaseless ages, he must more fully develop his principles, that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings, and that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond all question. So when God is making decisions, his context and the basis of his decision considers the entire cosmos, the entire universe, not just humanity. And, um, and so that factored in. So just, just as a, a, a quick review, why did God permit rebellion and evil to mature? Number one, so that Satan could reveal his true nature, his claims and rebellion, because that was not understood at that time. The Satan wasn't playing by the rules, but God was. And this fact was to be made evident. So, and why did God permit evil to uh, go on? Well, God had to demonstrate to, to demonstrate God's law and government to be just and perfect. To make, uh, number four, he had to maintain the foundation and motive of God's government, which is love. Number five, for the full comprehension of all created beings to fully eradicate sin and the spirit of rebellion. And, and the key word here is full comprehension and full eradication. Because if he would have just blotted out Satan and everyone is now, uh, God says, sing for me, oh, you know, and, and they just sang for the Lord out of fear, would the spirit of rebellion and a full comprehension have been attained? No way. 
And so God, in his ultimate wisdom, chose the plan that he did. And this was, of course, for the good of the entire universe. All right, so there's also a, a Jesus perspective, and we're also we're still looking at this big picture here as we delve into these, these questions about the Old Testament and some of these laws. Like, what do you do with the fact that in the Old Testament, slavery is assumed, right? It's not necessarily corrected, it's just controlled in some ways. Polygamy as well. When you read through the Old Testament, how many of you have read through the Old Testament and then patriarchs and prophets start popping up that you didn't realize were actually had multiple wives? Have you, have you ever read through the Bible and, and, and saw this? And you're just thinking, whoa, you know, the Bible stories never told me that, that they had like 10 wives. And we're not just talking about David and Solomon. There are multiple others. And so how do we make sense of the fact that the Old Testament contains or assumes some things, assumes some things that today uh, we would not assume? And I believe Jesus provides some perspective on this issue. He provides some perspective as to how we should interpret uh, some of these ceremonial laws. They were not, and, and, and be careful how you listen to this because this could be misinterpreted, but some of these ceremonial laws, they were not necessarily the, based on an ideal, the or the ideal, and nor were they necessarily Absolute, and uh, and uh, so and, and I'm going to qualify this statement because I do believe in it, the the Ten Commandments are are morally absolute and and universal laws. We're talking about some of the ceremonial laws here, and not just in terms of the Sabbath, but but a wide range of laws. And uh, Jesus here provides perspective in Mark chapter ten, verses two through nine. It reads, the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now, question. The fact that God, uh, that, that God through Moses allowed or permitted divorce to occur, would you, would you, can you conclude that that was God's ideal? No. So here already in scripture, in the Old Testament, you see some allowances that God had to make, and, and Jesus explains why. Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. It's because of the hardness of your heart. It's not because that's, that's the, the ideal plan of God for your life, to marry and divorce, to marry and divorce. That's not God's ideal. Even him permitting that is not an absolute ideal. In fact, to the contrary. It was included because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this precept. 
but from the beginning of the creation, and here Jesus provides the ideal, the absolute ideal. But from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female, verse 7, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so this is the approach, and this is the perspective that we need to view some aspects, uh, at the very least, uh, when we approach the Old Testament. And I believe this is, this is vital. This is a key point. I'm going to show you another example of this uh, in a little bit, how, how some of the statements that are made in the Old Testament are to a specific people at a specific time to a specific mindset and culture. Okay, so that that just because you open the Old Testament and you read, don't pick up sticks on Sabbath, for example, you say, okay, I can't pick up sticks on Sabbath because that God says it, it's absolute, right? This is God's word, so I have to apply it to my life right now. Here, absolute truth, and we as Adventists often get in danger, uh, uh, endanger ourselves when we do that. And, uh, I, and, and I'll, I'll qualify that uh, in a second here. So, let's move forward. We know, uh, one Bible commentary in, 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 in this context of what Jesus just stated there, we know that the Old Testament law had to strike a balance between the ideals of God's creational standards and the realities of human life. The clearest illustration of this tension comes from Jesus in the divorce controversy. The argument was over the divorce law in Deuteronomy chapters 24, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, which, as Jesus pointed out, did not, did not command divorce, but permitted and regulated it for the sake of of the woman. And it's widely uh, understood by, by most scholars that, that the reason why God put that clause in there was to protect the woman. Because if, if the husband could just, you know, divorce her without any written agreement or whatever, and she was an outcast, being a single widow uh, during uh, that period of time was not very advantageous. Uh, to, uh, to, to put it uh, uh, as one way to put it. Goes on to say, but Jesus takes his questioners further back in terms of the accommodating due to human sin and depravity. And, uh, and, and then Jesus takes his uh, questioners further back and points to the creation ideal from Genesis chapter 2 verses, uh, verse 24. Lifelong monogamous marriage is God's best will for men and women. But in a fallen world, God allowed divorce because of your hardness of heart. The same scriptures drawn from the one Torah uh, both state God's creational ideal and also legislate God's concession to our sinfulness. Not the fact that he's condoning uh, sin, but he was meeting them where they were at, uh, but also with the mindset to take them higher. 
So this, this uh, approach helps us in our dealings with slavery and polygamy uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, the same author, Christian uh, Christopher Wright, said this, it seems probable that if Jesus had been asked questions about slavery or about polygamy, he would have answered similarly. Meaning, divorce is not God's ideal, but given that context, I'm going to put some parameters around it to protect the woman so that there's no limited abuse or no abuse that can occur. And therefore, I'm going to implement some concessionary laws to, to protect uh, the situation when it does occur. And, and, and I believe this is a very insightful comment by Christopher Wright when he says that it seems probable that Jesus, if he was asked about slavery, or if he were asked about slavery and polygamy, he would have answered similarly. That here, again, he's trying to uh, limit the abuses given the context that it was so pervasive at that time with the ultimate goal of eventually eradicating it because the principles of slavery slavery and polygamy are anti-scriptural right they are wrong from the beginning these things were not in god's intention but in a fallen world of hardened hearts they might be accommodated with limiting and mitigating regulations and with a strongly subversive critique that would eventually lead to clear recognition of their wrongness. Because this is, this is the bottom line, this, and this is the issue at stake here. You have these new atheists searching out these Old Testament texts that assume slavery. They do not forbid slavery, it assumes slavery, providing parameters. And so they look at these texts and say, see, God is endorsing slavery. You see, God never says anything about polygamy, therefore he's endorsing polygamy. And so as we wrestle with, with these questions, and I've wrestled with these things for a long time, and, and so as we, we look at these things, to me, this statement makes makes some sense to me and uh, and I'm not saying that it's the all-conclusive answer and as I was mentioning earlier this is really a discussion that that we're having together that at least begins a or initiates a framework or puts some thoughts into your minds so that you have at least a starting point for approaching some of these very extremely difficult questions. Does that make sense? It's quiet out there, so I'm wondering, is everyone sleeping? <laughs> um, what I will say, we'll, we'll start off here because this, this, this began, this is the beginning of, of really looking at, at, at this issue here, and I, and I hope that uh, it's, it's 12 here, so we need to end, but has some of this dialogue, some of these principles been helpful? and your understanding of, of approaching and addressing uh, some of these things. Because as you can see, it's not easy. And, uh, and uh, I pray that God will continue to bless us and enlighten us 
as we, as we study and delve into some of these things. All right, let's go ahead and, and bow our heads uh, for a closing word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we come to you in, in humility, recognizing our limitations, uh, not just in knowledge, but uh, in terms of intellectual capacity and understanding. And Lord, in spite of these things, we're glad, uh, we're happy uh, that we also have, at the same time have a sense uh, of our weakness, that we can uh, continue to depend and lean on you for further growth and understanding. And Lord, guide us uh, throughout the, the rest of WYC as we um, come back and, uh, and, and have uh, some further meetings to address some of these things. We pray for continued uh, direction uh, in every way possible. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.